Tonight, I want to start off by, by giving credit where credit is due. Uh, in my preparation for this message, there was just one particular resource that was just extremely helpful for me. Uh, Paul Washer's series on recovering the gospel. Many of you heard of the, that series. He has about three books. One is on the gospel power and message. Uh, one's on true conversion and the other's on uh, assurance. And those books are just tremendous, uh, a wonderful resource to have. And so uh, I'm somewhat indebted to Paul Washer. Uh, in his work, especially in the, uh, his book titled The Gospel Power and Message. I pulled a lot uh, from that book in preparation for this, uh, for this message. And I just want to sort of recommend those books to you. If, if someone came up to me and, and they said, Deontay, what book should I buy? Out of all the books that exist in the world, what book should I buy? Uh, <laughs> the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the next book, other than the Bible, um, is... Uh, recovering the gospel series. It's just amazing. Amazing. We had the privilege, a, couple, a few of us went down to uh, uh, the Shepherds Conference and got to see Paul Washer preach. He, he's a passionate man. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and that shows in his preaching. And so, anyway, Paul Washer, uh, recovering the gospel series. If you get a chance, look, look into him. Phenomenal, phenomenal resource. Um, and so, as you can imagine, tonight we're going to be talking about the gospel. Elaine sort of mentioned that as he was leading us uh, in worship. We're going to talk about the church's gospel and uh, the church's view of conversion. And I just want to make something clear, as you guys see on your handouts. At the top, it says the church's gospel and the church's uh, view of conversion. When I say the church, uh, the church's gospel, I'm talking about the true gospel, uh, the biblical gospel, the biblical view of conversion. Uh, we're studying in 1 Timothy chapter 3 right now. And in chapter 3, what does Paul call the church? Uh, the household of the living God. And what's the other descriptor he gives for the church? The pillar and the buttress of truth. Uh, in other words, it's the place where truth is upheld. It's the place where truth is to be protected. And so when I say uh, the church's gospel, I mean the true gospel. When I say the, the church's view of conversion, I mean the, the true and the biblical view of conversion. I just want to make that clear. Um, and so I, I want to talk about the structure of tonight's message. Um, I'm going to talk about conversion first, going to hit on a couple crucial points, and then I'm going to move to the gospel. And I, I did a sort of switcheroonie at, uh, last minute. Um, that just means I switched things up. Sorry, that's my <laughs> way of explaining that. Um, I was going to talk about the gospel first for the first three, three quarters of the message, and then the, the, the last quarter hit on conversion, um, but... You guys know this, the gospel is, is crucial, it's important, and once I, once I get there, I, I want to stay there, um, and I don't want to feel rushed. And so, we're going to start off with conversion, we're going to start off with conversion. And, and like I said, I'm just going to make a, a, a couple, couple points regarding uh, the biblical view of conversion, the church's view of conversion. Uh, these are really, really important, but I want to define it first for you. Conversion, and you, you could be following along. I got the little notes, and I put the blank, so uh, if you want to do that. Um, conversion, it's the act or the instance um, of converting. <laughs> now, most of you are like, come on, man, that's not, that's not going to do. You know, I'm amazed at all the definitions out there, and they just have the word right in the definition. That is just not okay. That's not, <laughs> it's not cool. I'll give you a better definition. 
conversion is the process or the act of being changed. The process or the act of being changed. The, the process or the act of being turned around, of being transformed. When we talk about uh, conversion in the Bible, we're talking about the act or the process of being changed into a Christian, being changed into a believer. We're talking about the act or the process of one changing their spiritual condition from unregenerate to regenerate, from unsaved to saved. And the first really important uh, point that I want to hit on uh, in light of conversion is this. Conversion is both a work of God and man. It's a work of both God and man. And of course, it's a work of God. Uh, we know this. This is clear in Scripture. And I want to show you that. I want you to turn with, to me with uh, John chapter 3. Any of you are familiar with John 3? Uh, God is really the one who initiates conversion. He, he's the one who allows for it to happen. So most of you guys know what's going on here in John chapter 3. This is Nick at night. It's a clever little saying. Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. Um, for those of you who didn't have a childhood, uh, Nick, Nick at night, it was Nickelodeon at night. So uh, Nicodemus is approaching Jesus by night here. Um, and he comes to Jesus with a question. And he didn't really ask the question. Jesus knew it. He knew what was in the heart of man. Right? John chapter 2 said that, says that. Uh, Nicodemus was coming to ask him a question. And that question is, how can a person be saved? Uh, how, how can they get to heaven? And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Most of us know that. And the Pharisees had a sort of work, work, work mentality, didn't they? When Nicodemus came to Jesus uh, this night, and he had that question in his heart, how can a person be saved? He was expecting Jesus to say something like this. Hey, Nicodemus, uh, go do this. Uh, Nicodemus, to be saved, to get into heaven, go do that. Nicodemus, adhere to this law. Nicodemus, adhere to that law. Is that what Jesus said? No. Look at, chap uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Rather than telling Nicodemus to work, Jesus said this, be worked on. Does that make sense? Uh, rather than telling Nicodemus to do something, Jesus said, you need something done to you. He was communicating to Nicodemus here that God is the one who saves. God is the one who initiates uh, conversion. It's an act of God. And without God, it's impossible and really, this is all throughout the New Testament. You guys know this. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. Unless the Father draws them. So conversion is an act of God. But alongside of being an act of God, it also involves man. It's a work of man as well. And here's where uh, the divine paradox happens. Uh, how can conversion be a com complete work of God? And man still be involved in it. And, and can I just be honest with you guys? Uh, save yourself some time from trying to really grasp that. Uh, we're finite creatures. Uh, we can't really understand. It's the, the debate about God's sovereignty and, and human volition. Uh, 
No one's going to be able to answer that question for you. But it's true. It's true. God is sovereign, and yet at the, at the same time, man is responsible. We affirm that. We believe that. We teach that. So as well as being an act of God, conversion uh, is a work of man as well. And this is really clear all throughout the four Gospels. When Jesus approaches a sinner, what does he say? He doesn't say, hey, God, work on this person. No, he calls the sinner to repent and believe. He tells the sinner to repent and believe. Isaiah 55, 7, it says, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. It doesn't say let God do that. It says let the man do that. Let the man do that. But then we have passages like this in John 3 where Jesus tells Nicodemus, you got to be worked on. You got to be worked on. Both are true, ladies and gentlemen. Teach both of them when it comes to conversion. Conversion is a work of man. It's a work of man, and it's a work of God. That's point number one. Point number two regarding, regarding conversion is this. Conversion requires change. It requires change. And, and this is just a crucial point to make. I wish I had really all night to talk about this, but, but I don't. Um, there's just this heretical and really, I'm, I'm going to call it what it is, it's a damning doctrine that exists out there, even among evangelicals, that says uh, you can be converted, but you don't really have to change. And that's just really, like I said, I'm going to call it what it is, it's satanic. It's heretical. It's found nowhere in scripture, nowhere. Just think about what conversion means. Think about how we've defined it. It's the act or process of being changed. And to say that, that, that one can be converted and not change, it's just contradicting. It doesn't make sense. This is a serious issue here, guys. It really is. Listen, when a person is acted upon by God, by the God of the universe, that person changes person's different. Now, now let me be careful here. I'm not saying that that, perfect, that person is perfect by any means. Uh, they, they don't obey God all the time. I, I'm not, I don't preach perfectionism, but they are radically different. Amen? They're radically different, guys. You guys know this. Believers, you know that you're different. You're different. When we're converted, we, we turn from the things we once loved, which is sin, and, and, we, and we forsake them, and we turn to the things of God, and, and we grasp a hold of them, and we love them. We turn from our sin. Conversion requires change. Let me show you just one clear passage in the Bible that speaks to this. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Towards the end of your Bible, you're in John. Turn to 1 John This is everywhere in the New Testament. It really is. It's just one, one passage that hits it on the head very clearly. Chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 4. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, that is Jesus, he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. It's clear. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. 
So many people are being deceived today. So many people are being deceived today. You can be a Christian, but you don't really have to change. It's not what 1 John is saying. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. That person has been filled with the Spirit of God. They can't just go on practicing in, in the unrighteousness that they once lived in. They can't. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You do unrighteousness and you practice it, you're unrighteous. Uh, you do righteousness, you're righteous. It's clear. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 7. He has the Pharisees in mind. He, he says, you know them by their what? The fruits. The fruits. Conversion requires a change. It's point number two. Those are really the only two points that I want to hit on. And again, ladies and gentlemen, we, we must protect those two truths converting, uh, uh, regarding conversion. They're essential. They're being tampered with. Got to protect them. So let's move on to the gospel. And guys, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean this in my heart of hearts. I really do. This is crucial. This is so important. It is. If you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. If you miss this, if you miss the gospel, life is pointless. Life is meaningless. You have no hope. We need great grace tonight to understand this. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me? Lord, you taught me so much in my preparation for this message and sort of fanned into flame my love for you <clears throat> and my love for, for your word and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this message, Lord. Thank you so very much. God, I pray that you help us tonight to understand this, Lord. The, the unbeliever in the room, help them to believe this. The believer in the room, who's been coming to Cross Life week in, week out, who's been in Cross Life for five years, Lord, help them to, to see the truths of the gospel message and, and help us to bathe in them, Lord. God, we need great grace. We ask for your help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I begin to prepare for tonight's message and what the Lord was telling me to communicate to you all, I began to sort of wrestle in my spirit. I really did. There was this sort of struggling that was going on inwardly. And the reason for that was because when I began to think about the gospel, there, there immediately was just, these, just this countless number of passages that just came running in my mind. And there was a countless number of ideas that just came running in my mind all at once. And 
I wanted to communicate them all to you. I wanted to communicate them all to you. And I knew I couldn't. It sort of led to my frustration. There were just so many scriptures. There were just so many sermons. There were just so many comments made by men and women who I, whom I know you and I both greatly respect. And it just all came sort of bulldozing into my mind all at once when I began to think of the gospel. And I wanted to communicate them all to you, but I knew I couldn't. I knew that some of those thoughts and ideas and passages would eventually leave me. There was no possible way for me to actually retain them and yet alone write them all down. And even if that was the case, I'm limited by time. I'm limited by time. Why do I tell you this? The, the reason I tell you this is because though there was so much going on in my mind when I began to think of the gospel, so much going on, there just seemed to be this one particular idea that just kept returning again and again and again. I just couldn't get rid of it. And it was this, importance. Importance. It kept coming back to me again and again. I knew that when I first got up here and I started to hit on the gospel, I had to relay to you all the importance of the gospel. That was a must. Scripturally, I'm obligated to do that. I'm obligated to communicate that to you. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said to the church concerning the gospel, I, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. He, he says first importance, first importance. Tonight, we will discuss the most important topic in the history of man. And I know that's a very bold claim, but I'm convinced it's an accurate one. Listen to what one person said concerning this issue. He says, and quote, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest of all treasures given to the church and the individual Christian. It is not a message among many, but it's the message above them all. It's the power of God for salvation and the greatest revelation of the manifold wisdom of God to men, end quote. And if I was to dare add to what the scholars said, I would go a little further and say this. The gospel, more than being the greatest of all treasures given to the church and the Christian, it's the greatest of all treasures given to the world. It's the greatest of all treasures given to the world. You're in 1 John. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The reason why the gospel is the greatest treasure in the entire world and the reason why its message is of the utmost importance is because of its power. Paul, he gave it first place in his life and he gave it first place in his ministry because it had a supernatural power to bring about the salvation of souls. And listen to this, that's the most important thing. What greater need is there from a man than his soul be redeemed? 
That's why he gave it first place. The Bible is extremely clear that the result of this uh, relational chasm that exists between God and man will result in God crushing men, their condemnation. And the only thing that can, that can bridge the gap, if you will, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. Paul says here in verse 16, he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This alone makes it the greatest news ever delivered to the world. It's very, very important. And you would think that because of its importance, people would do well to handle it with great care and reverence. Fortunately, that has not been the case throughout its history. Uh, throughout the history of the church, there's been this nonstop, this sort of relentless attack on the gospel. And, and when you think about it, you're really at a loss for words as to why this is the case. I, I asked myself, I, I said, why would men and women tamper with the only message that has the power to save them from the fires of hell? just doesn't make sense. But it's been happening all throughout history leading up to this very day. Men and women throughout the history of the church, they've tampered with the purity of the gospel. There's been a continual perversion of what it communicates. And this really all began once our Lord Jesus Christ ascended back to, the, back to heaven uh, during the age of the apostles, the apostolic age, there were men like the Judaizers. You guys know who the Judaizers are? If you've read the New Testament, they, they twist the gospel into this message of Jesus plus something else. Uh, oftentimes it was Jesus plus adherence to the law or, or Jesus plus circumcision. That was the perversion of the apostolic age. And following the apostolic age was the patristic periods. This was the, the time of the early church fathers. And, and there were just so many perversions by this time. Uh, there, were no many, there were no more apostles left. John had left the scene. He was the last one. He died. And there just seemed to be this constant fight for truth uh, by the believers. And one particular gospel perversion that was taking place during the patristic periods was this Gnosticism. Most of you guys are familiar with Gnosticism. The Gnostics twisted the gospel by attacking the person of Christ, and namely his humanity. Uh, they said this. They said that all matter is evil, but the soul, that is the inward man, is good. And, and sort of working, and, and with that premise, they sort of concluded that Jesus couldn't have been composed of matter. He couldn't have been in the flesh. They also taught that you needed some, some higher knowledge uh, obtained in order to get to heaven. That was the perversion during the patristic period. During the time of the Middle Ages and the Reformation, if you sort of want to go from about 400 AD to about 1700s, uh, the Catholic Church and, and the Roman Empire began to suppress the authority of the word of God. You guys know this. And the gospel, once again, once again, was perverted once again twisted, turned into something that it's not, uh, really a list of, of do's and don'ts fabricated by men. We ought to praise God for men like John Huss, men like Martin Luther, 
men like John Calvin Moon, who fought for the purity of the gospel. And following the Reformation was the age of the Enlightenment. We're familiar with this. We learned this in our history classes. And many of you know that, again, this is the time period in which man's rationale, men's reasoning capability sort of became the litmus test for all truth. And the gospel perversion that took place during the age of the Enlightenment was this. They, there were aspects of the gospel that were truncated, that were reduced in order to fit man's reasoning capability, as opposed to man's reasoning capability uh, being conformed to the gospel. It's been distortion after distortion. And when you think about all these historical perversions, they're really all like spiritual self-inflicting wounds, if you will. Of course, all people who are damned to hell are there because of their own refusal to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but it seems as if tampering with the gospel is the worst of them all. As men pervert the effectiveness of the only message that can save them from the wrath of God. Just sort of mind-boggling. Doesn't really make sense. Oh, and what about this present age we live in? Perversions continue. They still exist. And think, think for a sec with me, ladies and gentlemen. Minus the cults, minus the, the, the wacky cults, they're wacky, all right, we all know that. Mormonism, come on. Jehovah Witness, come on. Just minus them, let's set them off for a side. Or, or for a time. Let's set them off to the side. Minus them, there are still under individuals under the umbrella of evangelicalism who twist the gospel. Men and women who, whom you and I would call brothers and sisters. They still pervert it. If I were to describe in one word the perversion that has sort of taken place within this age, it would be this, reduction. Reduction. The gospel has been reduced due to laziness, due to sinfulness, due to neglect of the word of God. Paul Washer speaks of this gospel reduction. Listen to what he says. Quote, one of the greatest crimes committed by this present Christian generation is its neglect of the gospel. And it is from this neglect that all, all our other maladies spring forth. The lost world is not so much gospel-hardened as it is gospel-ignorant because many of those who proclaim the gospel are also ignorant of its most basic truths. The essential themes that make up the very core of the gospel, the justice of God, the biblical, uh, the biblical teaching of the radical depravity of man, the blood atonement, uh, the nature of true conversion, and the biblical basis of assurance, all of these things are absent from too many pulpits. Churches reduce the gospel message to a few creedal statements, teach that, teach that everyone and anyone who prays the sinner's prayer is saved. He ends with this. The result of this gospel reductionism has been far-reaching. End quote. He's spot on. The gospel in these, these days has been reduced. Certain aspects of it have been cut off, if you will. Turn into something it's not. And Christian, we must 
fight to protect it. You all should still be in Romans chapter 1. Look at what Paul says. I want you to look at it in the middle of verse 16. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It saves. We got to fight for it. Verse 17, look at verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is how a man is made right with God. It's in the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, this is serious business here. Gospel is not just some ordinary message from your average Joe. It contains a supernatural power to save. And again, that's what men need. We as Christians, we, we ought to stand with the, the, the sort of giants of the Christian faith, men like John Huss, men like Martin Luther, men like Stephen of the early church, men like John Calvin, uh, men like George Whitfield, men like Paul Washer, men who are willing to give their lives for the protection of the gospel. Listen to what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to these words. Verse 20, he says, oh, Timothy. And I can, just, I can just see the apostle Paul's face. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. And the deposit there, was the gospel. The apostle Paul had learned from none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, or, or he had learned from Jesus, and then Paul dispensed the, the gospel to Timothy, and he says, protect it, guard it. Second Timothy chapter one, again, verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, believer, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. I could really spend a whole message on this, talking about the importance of the Christian to, to need to protect the gospel. We're called to do that, believers. Guard the deposit, Paul says to Timothy. But before we guard it, we have to know it right? We have to know it. And what I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to do something a little different in terms of my explanation of the gospel. And for those, I've been saying the gospel a lot, and I don't want to presume that everyone knows what that means. The gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good tidings or good news, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And most of us here are used to this sort of systematic way of laying out the gospel. You start with God, you move on to man, then you talk about the great dilemma, and then you talk about the solution. And I, I really condone that sort of system of laying out the gospel. It's great, uh, but I'm not going to do that tonight. I don't have time to do that in light of all that I want to communicate to you. And so I'm going to hit on some aspects of the gospel uh, that have sort of been undermined today. Some aspects of the gospel that are being reduced and, and neglected by uh, by people, again, who are under our same umbrella, under the umbrella of Christendom, under the umbrella of evangelicalism. They're being reduced. People who are ne neglecting certain aspects of the gospel. 
And these aspects of the gospel are crucial. They're essential. We can't go away from them. And so point one, point one, if you're following along in your notes, the gospel is all about the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. Type this up, print it out, stick it on your shirts. Uh, Tape it on your foreheads. Put it on your doorposts. I'm serious. Uh, Ingrain this in your mind. Embroider this on your hearts. Gospel is about the glory of God. We're in Romans, and most of us know that the book of Romans is just really this systematic layout of the gospel. Systematic layout of the gospel. Uh, Paul, Paul had never met these believers in Rome. And he knew it was essential for them to understand uh, the gospel, to have a clear understanding of the gospel. And he wanted to deliver it to him. Look what he says in, in verse 15. You should still be there in chapter 1. He says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he did this. And he did it in a very brilliant and a very systematic way again. And sort of for the first three chapters, uh, this is sort of Paul's section in his systematic layout of the gospel. This is his condemnation section, his condemnation section. From about 118 to about 320, he's laboring to prove every man guilty in the sight of God. And his conclusion is in chapter 3, verse 19. Look at it. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. Skip down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's condemned. Everyone is condemned. Everyone is proven guilty. But though everyone is proven guilty and the wrath of God is upon their head, there still is a way to be made right with God, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul moves from the first three chapters, the section on condemnation. He then moves to the section on justification, justification. From about chapters 3, verse 21, to about the beginning of chapter 5, he talks about how man can be made right with God. And again, that's by placing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Look what he says in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. He says, now to the one who works, that is the one who tries to work his way to heaven, what's going to happen? His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that is Jesus, his faith is counted as righteousness, belief. Belief, Paul says, you're condemned, but you can be made right by placing faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul moves from his justification uh, to then talking about the results that come about. So you have condemnation, you have justification, and then you have the results that come about in his next section. And that goes from about chapter 5 to about chapter 8. Paul's laying out the results that come about from one believing in the gospel. And one of the results he mentions in chapter 5, verse 1, look at what he says there. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What a beautiful thing. We have peace with God. Again, that relational chasm has been bridged, if you will. Another thing that comes about, another result 
of one being justified is in chapter 6, verse 4. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And this sort of ties back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the message. Conversion requires change. Once you've been justified, once you've been made right with God, you're a new person. You got a new life. That's a result of being justified. And another result is mentioned in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death, this is a great verse, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, that is, believers, that is, the one who's been justified from the love of God. What a beautiful thing. First three chapters, condemnation. Next three, justification. Next three, result of justification. And then Paul's last really section in his sort of systematic layout of the gospel uh, goes from about chapter 9 to about chapter 11. And, and Paul's really just talking about the sovereignty of God. He starts there, that is God's choice, uh, choosing those whom he's going to justify. And then that leads to him talking about God's future with Israel, how he's not done with them yet. There's still something to be done with Israel. And the reason why I take you through all of the book of Romans sort of quickly is this, because I want us to, to take note of, of the Apostles Paul conclusion. When Paul has thought of condemnation, when he's thought of justification, when he's thought of new life and that no one can separate us from the love of God once we're justified, what are his concluding thoughts? When he has bathed in the gospel, when he has uh, worked hard to clearly lay it out, what does he end with? Look at chapter 11. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be the glory forever. Amen. 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 The conclusion is the glory of God. Do you see it? It's the praise of God. The Apostle Paul knew nothing else but to say, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We live in this sort of humanistic, sort of anthropocentric world which seeks to make man the center of everything that exists. And this has crept into the church. It's crept into our explanation of the gospel, hasn't it? And it's wreaked havoc. Men and women, even like I said, under the umbrella of evangelicalism, they're consumed with themselves. The gospel is about our salvation. It's about our freedom. 
It's about our happiness. Come to Jesus. He's going to make your life great. It's all out there, isn't it? It's not the point of the gospel. Those things are a result of the gospel. Don't get, it, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. They're a result, but they're not the main objective. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of our thoughts on the gospel, uh, when we have concluded our thinking on the gospel, when again, when we've bathed in its rich truths, here's what we should say. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. When we preach this to our families, and I have this tendency as well, I want my mom, I want my sister, I want my brother to be saved. I want those who I play sports with to be saved. I want them to know the Lord. You guys have the same burden. I know this. But, but what's the point? Why do we want them to be saved? Why? And oftentimes I'm wrestling in my heart. Is it for them, ultimately? Is that what Paul tells us it is? For them, ultimately? I'm sorry to tell you this, it's not. When we've labored to proclaim the gospel to our unbelieving family members and our unbelieving co-workers, here's what we should want them to say. We, we, we should want them to get on their knees and say, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God. How inscrutable are his ways for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's what we want. That's what we're after. Paul doesn't just say this here. Ephesians chapter 1, in just one chapter, three times, he's talking about man being adopted. Man being adopted into the family of God, then being given the spirit of God. What's the point? He says three times, is so that they would praise God to the praise of his glory. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, listen, you guys just went through this in our community groups. What does Paul call the gospel? The gospel of what? The glory of God. The glory of God. Labor to remember this, ladies and gentlemen. It's being neglected. It is. Again, because the society we live in, labor to teach it, labor to protect it. Got to move a little faster here. Second point, the gospel makes much of sin. Gospel makes much of sin. Can I be honest with you in, in this regard? No one, wants, no one likes this in their flesh, not even the presenter, even the people who come on the campus and proclaim it at the top of their lungs that all men are sinners. They don't even like this in their flesh, but it's necessary, isn't it? It's necessary. Don't undermine this aspect of the gospel. Call sin what it is. Labor to show men and women who they truly are. Labor to show that sin is a transgression. It's a, it, it crosses a divine boundary line. Labor to show that the sin of men is sadistic. It's cruel in its nature. Labor to show that the sin of men is wicked. It's heinous. Labor to show that the sin of man seeks to take the glory of God. It seeks to dethrone God. Labor to 
show that the sin of man is ruthless. It only cares for itself and will destroy all other things to get its way. Look at Romans chapter 1 really fast. Look at Romans chapter 1. Listen to this list. This is who we really are at our core. This is who you really are at your core. This is who Deontay is really at his core. Verse 29, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul's talking about unbelieving Gentiles. He's going to give this really vivid list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They're, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. Have you had enough? We'll keep going. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written... What does Paul say about men? No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. One? Does one understand? No. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one's seeking after God on their own. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is, is full of curses and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are, are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You think you're good? <laughs> Dismantle that. We must labor to preach this. La- ladies and gentlemen, we, we, when we labor to make this clear, then and only then is, is Christ seen in all his glory. Then the news is truly good. Then the news is truly good. Make much of it. Make much of sin in your preaching of the gospel. This is the true biblical gospel. This is the church's gospel. We, need, we want men to fall down as we labor to teach them that they're sinners. We want them to fall down and say, woe is me. For I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's what we want them to say. Last point, the gospel makes much of the wrath of God. The gospel makes much of the wrath of God. This, this again, is, is, is crucial, and again, it's being undermined. It's being cut off. It's not being taught in the gospel Within this aspect of the gospel hangs the character of God. The Bible teaches that God is a, is a holy God. He has no part in wickedness. Uh, morally, he's a transcendent being. He can't even be tempted by wickedness, James chapter 1. The Bible also teaches that God is a righteous God. He, he's a God who knows no wrong and does no wrong. And because of that, because God knows no wrong and he's, and he's holy, and because man is the complete opposite, what's the result? Here's the result. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is coming. It's being revealed, rather, Paul says. Because God is righteous, he will unleash his wrath upon all wickedness. Make no mistake. Again, this too, ladies and gentlemen, in our flesh, who wants to say this? Who, who wants to say this in their flesh? We, li- we want people to like us. I too fall under that boat. I'm with you. B- but this is necessary. It's necessary. Believer in the room, ha- have you made much of the wrath of God? When you explain the gospel, are you, are you clear and cut when it comes to this aspect of the gospel? The Bible is. Look at Psalm chapter 7. Look at Psalm chapter 7. This is really, I mean, this passage, this really hits you where the, where the sun don't shine. <laughs> Try preaching this in your classroom. You're definitely, you're sure to get kicked out. Verse 11 of chapter 7 of Psalm. It says, God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. If man does, does not repent, God will, he'll wet his sword. He, he has bent his bow. He has, he, he, he has bent and readied his bow. Sorry, he, he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrow fiery shafts. He's bent his bow. He's readied it. And you better believe he's releasing it. You better believe it. Men and women, when we explain the gospel, they must, they must be warned that, that, that there's a war between them and God that they will lose. They better toss up the white flag. There's a wrath that they can't escape. They can't escape. Listen to what Paul Washer says again. I recommend his books. Great, clear Biblical. He says, we must never forget the Christ who gave his life for the nations is the same one who will strike them down and rule them with a rod of iron. The suffering servant who trod the path of Calvary will one day tread the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. The Savior who shed his blood for his enemies will appear a second time with his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. The lamb who bore the wrath of God on the tree is the same one who will pour out the wrath of God upon those who gather against him to such an extent that they will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from his presence. The prince of peace who proclaimed the favorable year will one day announce the day of his vengeance. He is the same one who will judge, uh, wage war, and, and lead the armies of heaven against the enemies of God. It is for this reason that the psalmist admonishes the nations to pay homage to the Son and to become, uh, that, he, that he may not become angry, and they perish in his way, for his wrath may soon be kindled, end quote. Why are the hard aspects of the gospel, Deontay? Why the wrath? Why the sin? Amen. Because it's the truth. And because it's neglected. Because it's undermined. 
again, even amongst, even amongst people whom you and I would call brothers and sisters. And if we're honest, we've done it before too, right? If we're honest, got to take a look in the mirror. Ladies and gentlemen, when we make much of these hard aspects of God, don't verses like John 3.16 sound so much sweeter? Don't, don't verses like 2 Corinthians 5, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we may become righteous, that we may become the righteous of God. Don't they sound so much sweeter? Don't passages like Isaiah 53.4 sound so much sweeter? Turn there with me as we close. I want you to read this verse, these two verses, Isaiah 50, 53, uh, verses, four, verses 4 and 5. I, I want you to read this and have this in mind. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's being unleashed. We're wicked. Read this verse in light of those truths. It says, surely he, that is Jesus the Messiah, has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You know those arrows of God's wrath that are coming your way? Christ has stepped in front of you. Let's keep going. He says, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, if we're honest, even the believers in this room, myself included, Lord, we, we struggle to present this accurately because it's hard. Lord, it's hard. And so we ask for courage. We ask for boldness to proclaim these things to the world, Lord, because we, we want to show Christ in all his majesty. We want to show him in all his beauty. We want people to understand why the news is good. Lord, help us, grant us grace, great grace, we beg and pray. And we, we know there, there, there might be unbelievers in the room, and so I, I pray that they would come and talk to anyone, talk to myself, talk to anyone next to them that, who they know is a Christian to converse about the gospel, the gospel of Christ that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we pray that they believe, Lord. And, and for the believer, Lord, we ask, Lord, we pray that we will remember these truths, that we would, again, we would just call them to mind often. And, and above all, Lord, help us to protect them. Help us to fight for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.